Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling with Leighton doing the work as always behind the scenes. Coming up on today's show in news, we've got good news and bad news with a couple of retailers releasing earnings results this week. Also, we'll look ahead to how supply chain issues in various types of alcohol could affect sales this holiday season. Our interview guest is Shannon Calhoun, the VP of Global Industry Strategy for Retail and CPG with TalkDesk. She will join us to discuss Q1 of 2022 insofar as returns and reverse logistics. Some things retailers could or should do to smooth out the process, how much they should, in fact, smooth out the process versus maybe attempting to entice a repeat purchase, and so forth. It's an enlightening conversation. She comes at it certainly from the customer experience side of things, so I think you'll certainly find that conversation worth sticking around for. A reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you enjoy the show, we do enjoy seeing those ratings pop up, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast delivery service. Those ratings certainly do help others to find us if you enjoy the show. So the question is good news or bad news first. Throughout my lifetime, I have always opted for the bad news first. So that's how we're going to deliver it during this podcast for the bad news We look to GameStop as they provide a quarterly update and things aren't looking so well on their bottom line. Now, this happened even as top line sales took a substantial jump from last year. It's something we've seen through the first three quarters of this year for GameStop, pretty large jumps over last year, but their inventories also intentionally climbed. So you would think a lot of positives going on for GameStop, but You know things aren't all that great when their earnings press release is just six bullet points followed by charts. No quotes or any explanations or anything there. Now their sales, as I said, were up big from just over $1 billion a year ago to nearly $1.3 billion. Inventory, as we also mentioned, that was up big time from $861 million at the end of last year's third quarter to $1.14 billion this year. So these things are very good. What is not very good for GameStop is the fact that their cost of sales were up substantially. Last year, their cost of sales came in at about 72.5% of net sales. This year, cost of sales were way up to 75.4% of net sales. So despite a trimming of selling general and administrative expenses, their loss before taxes was a whopping 8% of net sales, or $103.7 million. That's up from $72.7 million in last year's third quarter. And by the way, last year they also got a substantial tax benefit that they didn't realize this year. Their foreign losses per share came in at $1.39, a big miss on analyst expectations in the 20 to $0.30 cent range. So, Ultimately, a bit of an issue here for GameStop in that the cost of sales did rise. They're selling more, but at what cost? Quite literally, as it seems as though they couldn't quite afford the jump in sales that they saw during this quarter. 
So you thought, well, maybe the prepared remarks on the call will provide a little color to this if the earnings release didn't. That didn't really happen. Management talked about the bottom line loss and proceeded to very quickly mention blockchain and NFTs a bunch throughout the course of the call, as well as 200 senior hires they've gotten over the course of the quarter from top technology companies. That is a direct quote. They also highlighted their cash position, which to their credit, has improved over last year despite the massive loss during this quarter. They have no substantial debt on their balance sheets, so their cash position looking pretty good over the $1 billion mark. But you figure too many more losses like this, too many more quarterly losses like this will certainly erode situations there. And on this call, no analyst Q&A, no breakdown of net sales numbers either. Those were both staples before Matt Furlong's hire as CEO. Generally speaking, and I don't want to overgeneralize here in this situation and tell you that GameStop is on the road to rapid destruction and such, but retailers begin to cut out these extra details when they aren't doing so well. Saw this happen most recently at Sears Holdings with Eddie Lampert in charge, but When you look throughout the course of retail history, particularly for publicly traded companies, when they stop doing very well, you stop getting that information. And there's almost, it seems like, an intentional attempt to maybe muddy the waters for analysts a little bit so that no sirens go off, so to speak, in media outlets. Now, Furlong, the CEO, did note during the prepared remarks about all of the investments they're making with an eye towards the future of the company. Yet when you look at CapEx, it was less than $15 million for the most recent quarter. And for comparison, we turn to Costco, who we'll also turn our entire attention to now, but that was over $1 billion this last quarter. And you say, well, yeah, that's because Costco makes a lot more money, their revenue is higher. That came in at about 2% of sales CapEx expenditures did for Costco. As a percentage of sales, GameStops is about half as much. So they talked about all of these investments, unprecedented investments, and yet they're not even investing as much as a mature retailer is in the form of Costco. So just something to keep in mind there regarding the potential future, or at least the next year for GameStop. Also, no guidance whatsoever given on the call, which is also something that has stopped during Furlong's tenure. So let's talk a little bit about Costco, as sales once again point to continued strength across warehouse retail. Again, Costco provides monthly updates, so sales numbers aren't as much of a noteworthy news story, but their leadership did provide some insight on their call for what was their fiscal 2022 first quarter. This comes against a backdrop where Costco, Sam's, and BJ's have all been seeing varied levels of success as customers continue to trade up to larger quantity packaging. We see this, of course, in general merchandise and grocery, and the warehouse stores seem to be the ones to benefit. Costco's bottom line, that's something they don't provide a monthly update on, and that was a positive surprise versus expectations. Adjusted earnings per share of $2.97 versus expectations of $2.59, which was a 15% beat. And I'm sure a lot of Costco employees happy about that because Costco's got kind of a a unique thing 
A lot of their employees, of course, enrolled in their retirement program. Employees can actually purchase up to 50% of their overall retirement program into Costco stock. So they see the earnings beat, they see that stock increase, and of course, that makes the employees very, very happy indeed. Sales numbers for Costco, let's talk a little bit about that bottom line. As mentioned, if you've been following their monthly sales updates, these numbers aren't necessarily a surprise, but for those that don't, we'll cover it. The U.S. comp sales for Costco were up 9.9% during this past quarter, excluding impacts from gasoline price increases. Now, With gas included, those numbers were up 14.9%. This took place despite an overall general merchandise atmosphere where, at best, comps were up mid-single digits for the same period for a lot of retailers out there. And in many cases, you saw sales actually regress after cycling that big COVID spike in sales last year during 2020. So you've seen some general merchandise retailers, albeit not warehouse retailers, like the likes of, let's say, a Dollar General, seeing those sales decline a little bit as they lap strong sales from last year. That is not the case for Costco. Also, by the way, their e-commerce sales were up 13.3% enterprise-wide. And you can say just 13.3% enterprise-wide because I think a lot of people expecting a larger jump for Costco in terms of e-commerce sales. They're lapping big sales increases from last year. So two-year stack numbers put them right at about 100% increase. All of this, by the way, excluding foreign exchange impacts. And when you consider the fact that Costco's e-commerce was seen by many as of even 2019 to be not quite mature, I think a lot of folks were maybe expecting a bigger boost on the e-commerce front. But many of the comp gains are coming from in-store effects. They're at least getting those comp gains. They did see traffic up 5.9% in the U.S. during this most recent quarter. Ticket size was up 3.5%. Now, ticket probably a little bit negligible when you consider inflation across the board. They noted on the call that their merchants actually seeing year-over-year inflation of about 45 to 5% for all merchandise categories. So traffic, that key metric to maybe look at for retailers seeking to grow unit sales and increase share, both things that Costco has done, but the traffic very important to Costco with inflation where it is and with the ticket size only coming up 3.5%. Now, aside from sales, there was other positive information to glean from the numbers from Costco. Membership fee revenue was an example. That was up about 12.5%, and that came as a result of store count growth. So anytime you open up a store in a new market, you're obviously going to get a bunch of new members there. Renewals took place at higher rates as well, and also people leveling up in terms of the membership program and also introduction of new members in existing markets. So a lot of different factors contributing to that 12.5%. As an example, renewal rates in North America rose 30 basis points sequentially. They now sit at 91.6%. Costco also grew the number of executive members, which is the highest membership level of their platform, by 800,000 in the quarter. So generally, overall, an increase in this form of revenue usually portends future continued increases in net merchandise sales, typically on the traffic end as traffic will go up, although ticket size, especially for those executive members, has been increasing as well, and that's something that management noted on the call. 
Inventory, something we've been talking a lot about of late, especially with supply chain, especially with all those issues there. Inventories for Costco up 19.2% year over year. Even factoring in their opening of 25 new warehouses since last year, inventories were up 15.6% when you do the back of the napkin math on a per store basis. Now, this doesn't mean all is roses on the inventory front either. CEO Richard Galanti said that some of their holiday seasonal inventory, such as toys as an example, won't make it to their warehouses before Christmas. But they're doing their best to kind of attempt to deal with these developments and mitigate them where possible. When pressed in the Q&A, Galanti said it's impossible to know exactly how seasonal inventory delays will impact things in their second and third quarters. Second quarter being mostly holiday seasons, third quarter being mostly their spring quarter. But he did note that historically they've ordered things early in any case, just as a result of their above average storage capacity when compared to other retailers. Additionally, he noted that they've got about $1 billion in wiggle room, so to speak, in case they have to hold on to inventory for longer or maybe stockpile inventory on the front end. They've got about $1 billion worth of cash to play with in case they need to do so for inventory's sake. Now, he did mention that 79% of their import containers are late, the ones coming from overseas. The tardiness there is nothing to bat an eye at. The average container in that sample size of containers that are late are late by 51 days. It's pretty significant, over half a quarter, in fact. A quick note regarding expansion for Costco. We're fond of pointing out brick-and-mortar expansion on this show, but eight new warehouses in the past quarter for Costco across the globe. That includes their second French warehouse. They have plans for 19 new warehouses for the rest of their fiscal year enterprise-wide. And also, just because e-commerce sales haven't been exploding doesn't mean they haven't been continuing to pour resources in that direction. They've updated their app menu layout to facilitate returns more easily, and that's a topic we'll address with Shannon Calhoun in a bit. They've increased the number of locations with e-com lockers to 112 by the end of the most recent quarter. They're seeking to double that during the 2022 calendar year. And they've also rolled out Costco Next. Now, if you're familiar with Costco warehouses, you're kind of likely familiar to their warehouse road shows for different vendors coming in. This is kind of like that, the Costco Next, but in an online format. Currently, they have 34 suppliers offering around 1,000 items. And that was something they talked about quite a bit on the call because that also got some larger media coverage this last week. If there is one negative from a mostly positive earnings call, though, it was probably in fresh foods. Although sales here are strong, their year-over-year margins did take a hit after lapping last year. They saw increased spoilage versus last year and then also deleveraged somewhat in terms of what they called labor productivity. On the other side, consumer electronics, which is their largest sales category, saw a high single-digit increase this is despite rare deflation in the category noted by Galanti on the call. That was offset somewhat by reduced discounting, but he said that the price of TVs and other large consumer electronics actually going down year over year, which is rare really for products out there in general merchandisers. 
They're leading sales categories, by the way, in terms of year-over-year increases were jewelry, tires, and home furnishings. So overall, just to wrap it up here, Costco, a very good quarter. One that was somewhat expected after they released the monthly sales numbers during the span of that quarter, but also some good underlying things going on for Costco. Don't like the look of that 51-day tardiness on average for those shipping containers, and you know other retailers are seeing similar things. GameStop, the bad news, kind of a lot of it obscured and typically not a good sign when you look at retailers in the past that have downturns going on. You certainly hope for GameStop's sake that they can begin to turn it around, especially with new distribution centers that they've opened in the recent past. Well, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Shannon Calhoun, the VP of Global Industry Strategy for Retail and CPG. With TalkDesk, we'll be discussing returns for the first quarter of 2022. If you're someone that oversees product creation, product management, innovation, startups, etc., you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail, and a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate either a product fit with a consumer or maybe where it fits in the marketplace. Old style market research is too slow, far too complicated, and certainly too expensive for fast moving individuals or teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers wherever you want, whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies alike do with Feedback Loop. You can get quality feedback from target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invest product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a whole lot more. And best of all, you can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in just hours. Right now, if you go to go.feedbackloop.com retail, you'll get three full tests for free. Once again, that's go.feedbackloop.com retail. If you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest, build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Once again, three full tests for free. If you visit go.feedbackloop.com slash retail, that link, that's in our show notes. We've spent the last two months, really, talking about the high level of retail sales projected for the 2021 holiday season. However, with an increasing number of those sales coming via e-commerce, that means we can likely expect something else, a high level of retail returns in 2022. And joining us today to discuss the returns outlook for the retail industry for the first quarter of 2022 is Shannon Calhoun, the VP of Global Industry Strategy for Retail and CPG with TalkDesk. Shannon, welcome to the show. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Trent. Looking forward to a topic that I'm very passionate about. <laughs> well, I was wondering first if you could tell us a bit about TalkDesk and what the company does, and more importantly, what you do on the day-to-day. 
Great. TalkDesk is a cloud-native end-to-end contact center solution. And our focus and our belief is that there's experience a better way. We have 18 customers globally, a large percent of those retailers. I mean, at our core, it's been about innovation. We started 10 years ago. Our founder did a hackathon in San Francisco around voice technology. And here we are providing solutions across all aspects of the customer journey as it relates to a contact center. And we're also obsessed with service, which was a large reason, if not the primary reason why I came to talk to us. So I joined in February to launch and lead our global industry strategy for retail and consumer goods. And why I joined is one, personally, I have two things I'm not zen about, traffic and bad customer service. And in large part is I've been retailing it since college. And I started my days way back at Famous Bar, which was now a Macy's, but very focused on service. I had the pleasure of being at Land's End for four and a half years, which is the gold standard of contact center. And with COVID and the acceleration of you know digital shopping, McKenzie equates to 10 years of acceleration. The role of the contact center, which had been largely ignored for a long time, is now front and center. And that is because of things like returns. And so you mentioned contact center. Of course, returns in retail are a high contact time between the retailer and the consumer. I'm curious, you know, based on your experience, also based on what you do today on the day to day, how can we contextualize this communication a little bit between consumer and retailer as it pertains specifically to holiday returns? What do we see a lot of in terms of that communication process? It's very messy today, right? So depending on the organization, depends on how that goes. And retailers have really been grappling for a long time around the tension between providing an easy experience, and but the cost associated with doing those. And then how do you leverage and take the opportunity to drive you know, further revenue as a result of that? And it was much easier back in the day when somebody would bring something into the store, right? There was a live opportunity to help service the customer, help them solve the problem, find a better product. And so as those transactions have moved digitally, there are different ways that those things need to be solved. One, we know there's lots of talk about automation and self-service, and this is a perfect area. The number one reason why customers reach out to a contact center is where's my order and then returns right behind that. And returns is already a $480 billion impact to the industry, roughly, you know, 10% of transactions and returns. And there are categories of business like dresses that that goes up to 50%. So there is a new way that returns are having to be considered as they become a bigger mix of the business. And I think we're going to see that a lot, even more so. And we talked about maybe what are some projections? It's hard to say. We see the increase in e-commerce sales, right, continuing upwards of 15% over last year. But with the supply chain issues, I think we'll see unprecedented returns as a result of the delays in shipping and product not being there when it needs to. So the problem set is more complex, but there's a variety of different ways that retailers can solve them. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned automation. Let's dive into that a little bit. I'm kind of curious to what extent can or maybe should the returns process be automated for retailers, particularly those that do business primarily in e-commerce? It's a great question. I would say it's not just primarily e-commerce, right? So if you think about the notion of omni-channel, which is 
something I've been living and breathing since the onset of it. It, you know, it's omni-channel on steroids today, right? Because when we think about e-commerce, it's not just the commerce piece of it, but also the communications piece and how those things link together to drive, you know, a productive, when I say productive, both from the customer side, as well as the retailer side to make that happen. So, you know, as we improve automation through AI, there can be very simple reason codes that can drive an online return process without any interaction. But for so many times, there's an opportunity to transition that into selling a different product or additional product to that customer. So, you know, one of the things we really focus and specialize on is how do you leverage AI to optimize routing and therefore resolution of the reason why somebody's contacting. I alluded to it, but I think there's a lot we can speak to around the tension between making returns easy, but also making them profitable. And when we think about some of the biggest guys out there, one in particular makes the return process as easy as can be, but at a tremendous cost. So balancing, right, again, that automation and self-service while also then enabling the agents to deliver, you know, extended experiences around solving what the customer's problem is as it relates to returns is a huge opportunity. And today retailers, you know, capture reason codes as to why somebody returned things. And those can come back into the organization, right around maybe why something didn't fit, et cetera. But now leveraging reason codes to do a couple of things. One, early awareness to a problem with a product. So using, you know, text analytics to understand where there's an emerging return problem, a retailer then can become much more proactive and optimize routing based on those things. But it can also help you say if somebody's like, you know, it didn't fit, right? There would be an opportunity to automate. Can we get you a different size or a different color? You mentioned, of course, kind of the ongoing debate, even within some retailers, whether to make the returns process incredibly, incredibly easy for the customer and maybe cost yourself some return business in the process or to maybe kind of catch those customers and have an opportunity to build on that relationship from the return. What are some maybe conversations that retailers have internally about kind of where to fall on that spectrum, where to fall in terms of you want to make things obviously very easy for the consumer, but you also don't want to see that money walking out the door? In my experience for a number of years, it has been driven through the lens of cost reduction. And that has come at the experience of a customer. to very, very highly controlled returns processes, but with some of the players, the biggest one in particular, have reduced those friction points. So I really think about it as a trifecta of you're trying to balance that you make it easy you think smartly about what you're doing with that inventory that's being returned with reverse logistics, et cetera, and getting it to the place it's going to sell as quickly as possible. But then really thinking about how are you using that moment of returns to drive it into an opportunity to enhance your relationship, right? And how are you looking at it as a means to drive revenue? So you're thinking about it and the trifecta of those three things but also doing that then from the angle of what does that mean in the contact center, right? And how are you unlocking those three different components? And remembering that, you know, loyalty is a critical part of a healthy business. It's way more expensive to get a brand new customer. And those that feel like that they've had an easy 
quality service experience or more likely to shop again. So you overlay this notion of like the CLV, right? The customer lifetime value as it relates to the number two reason someone might do business with you in a contact center, you know, I think creates a different set of questions and answers that are changing the way people are thinking about returns. Now, with that in mind, I think something I've always found interesting is how retailers provide or maybe don't provide mechanisms for their customers to kind of path their own way to the correct returns assistance mechanisms. I think some retailers that I've dealt with have almost been hostile in their design in terms of these return mechanisms because they're trying to keep you from returning the product. And of course, that might erode that customer lifetime value that you speak of. I'm curious, what are some ways and effective ways in which retailers can correctly maybe direct customers to the proper assistance, whether it's automated, whether it's calling a contact center, as you mentioned, and likewise, how customers on the other end of things can also determine the correct pathway? I think this comes down to the thorough set of reason codes and the analysis that as to why people are calling you or contacting you, why people are returning the product, and then correlating the right journey associated with that particular reason code. It's not a one-size-fits-all, right? So as I gave the example of, it didn't fit. That should be an amazing opportunity for a retailer to lean in and say, you know, why, how, how can I help you, right? So when they're thinking about routing, let me step back, the customer might start with a self-service process, but how does the retailer then go in and pick up that exchange and turn it into an opportunity to better fit the needs of the customer where there is, you know, the no longer need, there's probably not another opportunity to upsell. So if I think about, again, the giant with whom I do more returns than I would like, has a, you know, very detailed reason code. And there is a prompt that says, you know, is there a way we can make it right? But you think about generating or initiating that returns process and based on what reason code I've selected then prompts me to another experience, right? And that could be completing the journey as it relates to the return with the UPC code or wherever I need to go all the way to getting you to an agent. Because the other thing that we've not mentioned here as much, but is this conversion of physical and digital experiences and the notion of how are you enabling your agents in the way that you enable your store associates who are very skilled in understanding how to, you know, take an experience like a return and turn it into an opportunity to make a customer happy through giving them the product that they need to solve the problem or the need that they're trying to meet. And we've talked a little bit about, of course, the scope of the contact center, but you bring up something very important, which is, of course, training. And I'm curious if there is a best practice or something along those lines that you've noticed as far as retailers making sure that everyone within the contact center is on the same page as maybe those that might be in store, what are some good things that you've noticed retailers doing as far as getting those contact center associates up to speed? I mean, there's a lot of factors and I will tell you it's only in recent, this is kind of hot off the press, right? As something that needs to be solved, there's an urgency that didn't exist. And that is because of the penetration of digital transactions and what that has meant to a contact center. What I'm saying, in other words, is that there's not a ton of best practices yet out there because this is relatively new. We see it. I will eat my words that those organizations that are maniacal about service are really great about that. And there are things like knowledge-based management systems, et cetera, 
that give your agent as well as your chat boss, et cetera, the opportunity to dig into and access data through, you know, AI as a means to be able to more quickly meet the needs of the customer and the questions that they're posing. And so knowledge management is a key part of that. And by integrating an AI and automating those transactions that don't require an agent, you know, what we hear a lot about too is that, you know, agents don't want to spend time with where is my order or a simple return. They're there to actually help solve or create a moment that matters with the customer. And you do that by giving them the right knowledge management tools, the right routing, the right information when they're coming in. And where we see the contact center going very quickly is really the cockpit into all things customer. And that really, you know, achieving that 360 degree view of the customer in order for an agent to be able to do their job effectively. You touched on something that I think is very important to this conversation, which is that agents are there mostly to solve problems. They don't want to be handling the simple inquiries. How do I return X item that, you know, process that might be automated otherwise, or, or where's my order? And as we know, I think a lot of contacts that come into a contact center are people that are just, hey, I just want to speak to a person. I don't want to use any of these chatbots or anything like that. What are some ways in which retailers can kind of entice some of those tech-wary consumers to maybe use those channels that might be unfamiliar to them to open up the agents to actually solve larger issues for other customers? I think that happens naturally when the technology is good. So said another way, chatbots have been out there for a while, but frankly have not been very effective. And so, I mean, I joke internally with folks, right? How many of us tried to bypass the chatbot like we bypass on the phone, just pressing zero, 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 right? Get me to a human. And most people still prefer to have some sort of human interaction outside of those things that are very simple. So the chatbot technology, the virtual agents that we offer, the agents assist are becoming a lot more sophisticated and therefore able to meet the needs. And so I think we'll see a natural transition as they become more effective. And being on a cloud platform is very important to be able to, you know, deliver those kind of AI capabilities to do that. And then as it relates to the balance of voice and live chat look a little bit different, I think, as we look at different generations. But live chat is emerging as a very popular channel and obviously social platforms as another means of communication you know, email is not as prevalent, right? I think we're seeing that downtrend as we see live chat and you know, Facebook Messenger become more popular channels for engagement because they're right where the customer is. And then there is still the necessity to talk to somebody on the phone. So again, it's coming back to the self-service has to be good. And when we see that happen, I think it's a natural transition for people to go there. And as we wrap it up here, just kind of curious, especially from your position in the industry, is there something in particular, whether it be in regard to returns or reverse logistics, that we should be keeping an eye on for, oh, the next year or so? I think an emerging, increasingly important topic is the sustainability impact of returns and what that's going to mean, both from like consumer experiences. I think that might be emerging. That is becoming top of mind, and especially there's been a lot of press, right, that returns just go into landfills. So as the, you know, resell, reuse, 
commerce grows, I think this is going to be a bigger issue that retailers are going to have to tackle. And that can be tackled through reverse logistics. When I was at Macy's, Trent, several years ago, there was a lot of sophistication on how to manage returns. And it was actually returns in dresses that sparked omnichannel for them because the problem was so significant between the two. So, you know, that hopefully virtuous cycle right, between selling a product and it being used or being returned. And a little bit more, you know, a big retailer that I worked with, also the metrics in which they managed the business fundamentally changed as they became omni-channel smart, which is the notion of demand versus fulfillment. And a large part of that, again, was driven by the amount of returns coming back into stores. And so how do you understand, does that product actually fit in the assortment? Should it be tagged right away and sent back to a hub store? This could be not just from online to in-store returns, but hub stores to spoke stores. So when we think about that trifecta of I want to make it easy, I also need to protect margin. So that's really that reverse logistics. And then the opportunity to take those more complex reason codes as they come back to or more opportunistic reason codes to you know, drive revenue through upselling and cross-selling is the way that retailers need to think about it. Well, some great insight. Once again, Shannon, we appreciate you taking the time today to discuss what could be a very large news story in the first quarter of 2022. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Shannon once again for joining us on the show today. And as we begin our Looking Ahead segment, I want to go back to the Costco earnings call. You know, one of the things that Costco mentioned during that earnings call is that so far, at least looking at their holiday sales, alcohol and spirit sales have been very strong this holiday season. And that's something that we've seen with other retailers who have had earnings calls recently as well, at least those retailers that dabble in that category. And that brought to mind a Washington Post article this week that noted that shortages on grocery store shelves are about 13% in the beverage category, alcohol as well as non-alcoholic beverages. Now, typical grocery categories around 5 to 10% in terms of out-of-stocks, but there's a number of reasons for this, not the least of which is the shortage in cans. And something that breweries are having to deal with is that can issue in particular here in Colorado, Ball, which makes a lot of cans, certainly for all beverage industries across the board, basically told breweries that they would have to buy multiple truckloads of cans printed for particular products as a minimum order, which is much greater than what the minimum order had been. So it's creating a question for breweries now as far as distribution is concerned. There are other issues, too, that are facing the beverage industry, many of them having to do with logistics. And because there's oftentimes in many states an extra link in that supply chain, that's another link for companies to struggle getting employment or state agencies 
to struggle getting employment as well. So certainly something to keep an eye on for the next couple of weeks in particular. The holiday season, for those that don't know, really spanning from about the second week in November through the end of December is the largest one for the alcohol and spirits category, much like the rest of retail, of course. But with the holiday gatherings going on, people buying those products for parties and the like, it can be a real revenue driver. And we've seen retailers like, for example, Target note that those categories are a big reason why they're seeing increases in sales in grocery overall. So you wonder how much this is going to impact those retailers because, again, alcohol and spirits distribution something that retailers don't often have a lot of control over. And I'm anxious to kind of see how things play out and if we'll see those truly empty shelves at stores across the spectrum by the end of the year or if instead this is an issue that doesn't impact retailers' top line nearly as much as some have postulated. I'm kind of leaning towards the latter, to be quite honest, because I think in terms of spirits retail, and this is something, again, I've got a little bit of experience with, although not recently, of course, but you see a lot of substitute goods taking place. So if a particular brand of, let's say, gin is out, customers are just as likely to pick up the next brand along the shelf. So really, you only run into issues when an entire category runs out. And so I think in all retailers might mention it alongside other shortages taking place in grocery, but I, I don't know that this is going to be something that's going to truly make a dent in a lot of retailers' top lines out there. But we know we'll certainly hear about it if it does. That'll do it for this episode of the Retail Focus Podcast. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Kathleen McNamara, and she will be discussing the very, very important aspect of retail recruitment as it pertains to C-suite and leadership positions with retailers. We've seen in the past a strong leader can do wonders for a retailer. Making the wrong hire can send a retailer very much in the other direction and into a tailspin for a long period of time. So she'll talk about ways to discourage high turnover in those C-suite positions and talk about things that, you know, if you're not familiar with the process, certainly very interesting to know from the retail onlookers perspective. So we'll look forward to next week's show for Late and Behind the Scenes. I'm Trent saying so long until approximately seven days from now. Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.